0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit CreeksideCommunity.org. All right, well, good morning again, Creekside. You are just unusually friendly, weirdly friendly this morning. You have name tags. You can see each other. (laughs) Awesome. Well, it's, it's good to see you all. Uh, and if you're joining us digitally, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it is your first time with us, welcome. We're so glad that you would choose to join us uh, today. And if it's your first time, we'd love to offer you a free gift, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle. Any of those are our gifts to you. You can get them over at the info desk after the service Uh, If you would like a name tag or you would like more information about our church or there's something we could be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you, you can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. You know, I I don't talk a lot about giving. We actually kind of never do from the front, but uh, I want to take a minute and just praise God uh, because 2021 was our best year ever financially. And uh, I think that's worth saying something about. And and I just want to say thank you, Creeksiders, because what I was so pleased with um, is not just the depth of giving, but the breadth of giving that so many of you have given so consistently and faithfully. And I'm just so pleased that you would take that aspect of your discipleship to Jesus seriously. And because you are generous, it's really fun for us because we get to just make more and more investments in the kingdom of God. We get to fund more workers around the world, more church plants. We have more resources to care for our needy brothers and sisters in our family here at Creekside. We can meet more needs in our city. We can pay down our mortgage. We can take the staff on a three-week European cruise. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. But, um, but seriously, thank you. Um, and really can mobilize more uh, in our city, to bless our city. And, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, so a few years ago, I was talking to one of our, our city council members here in San Leandro. And I said, hey, thanks so much for serving, man. Um, you know, Creekside, we really want to see our city flourish. So tell me, what are the, what are the pressing issues in San Leandro? And, and what can we do about them? And I loved his response. He's like, well, you know what they are. You're a pastor. That's your job, right? Just know, like, the issues in our city? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, yeah, I, I mean, I know. I know the needs in our city. I just want to know if you know. That's why I was asking to see if you, you know, if you knew the needs in our city. And, and as I'm talking to him, I'm, I'm embarrassed because I said, man, I, I don't know that I could lift the needs in our city. I realized I was, I was pretty disconnected, actually, from what was going on right in my own backyard. You ever felt that way? I think that's what many of us have experienced over the past few years. Uh, because COVID, it doesn't just disconnect us from people. I think it can also disconnect us from the place that we're in. Because for the past few years, we've sort of lived placeless lives. You work remote, and you go to school remote, and you have remote get-togethers, and everything happens somewhere on the interwebs, right? Uh, There's this growing sense that you can sort of live anywhere, work anywhere with no particular connection to anywhere, and and there's this growing sense that, that you can sort of be everywhere all the time. You lose your sense of connection to a place, and I think when you do that, it's natural to ask, well, why do I live here? Maybe I should live somewhere else. And apparently a lot of y'all are asking that question because a bunch of people moved over COVID and a lot of people are still thinking about moving. In fact, I saw one survey of barrier residents and 56% said they were planning on moving in the next few years. Now, there are obvious challenges to living in the place we live. It is not cheap. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not particularly welcoming. You might feel like, man, it's so secular, it's so post-Christian, why should I be here? Now, here's the deal. I think there are good reasons to move. I think there are not great reasons to move. This isn't a talk about moving, it's a talk about staying. Why would you stay in an area and how would God call you to think about the place you live regardless of how long What is he calling you to do? There's this fascinating verse in the book of Jeremiah. God is about to execute judgment on his people. He is sending them away from their homeland. He is displacing them and putting them in Babylon, which if you're an Israelite, is the last place on earth you'd want to live. And what does God call his people to do during their stay in exile? He says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says to his people, you will be blessed as you seek to bless the place you live. And I would say that that remains true for God's new covenant people. Because according to the New Testament, you and I are not home. We are exiles. I'll hear people say, Jeff, I don't feel at home in the Bay Area. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't feel at home anywhere. Ever. You know why? Because you're not home. You're not home because heaven hasn't come to earth. God is still preparing your home. And to be spiritually vibrant during our time in exile, we have to sacrificially love God. And serve the people around us. And the question to answer this morning is why? Why is the welfare of a city, the welfare of a place, connected to my spiritual life? Why is serving my neighbor connected to just my health as a Christian? That's what we're gonna talk about. So, January, we're doing this series, and we're calling it Reset Solid Ground for Uncertain Times. Because we're all trying to hit reset right now. Some of y'all have already given up on hitting reset. You're like, no, that's, that's for next January. But we try, right? New year, new year. We try to get back to, to basic habits. And as a church, we're, we're hitting reset and trying to get back to the basics. And we're looking at five core commitments for Creekside uh, that will not change. Things that are always true for the people of God. Things that were true before COVID. Things that were true during COVID. Things that will be true into eternity. Things that we should care about. And what we've tried to show you is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the priority, is the North Star for Christians, and that ultimately for any church, faithfulness means living out the implications of the gospel. The gospel is the main thing, And everything flows from the gospel, and we've been trying to unpack this for you. And we've said that, okay, if I believe in the gospel, then I'm going to be committed to knowing and studying the Bible. And if I believe the gospel, I'm going to be committed to loving and serving my faith family as a priority. And today, I want to say this, that if I believe the gospel, I will be committed to doing good works. That I won't despise the place I live, that I won't just use the place I live for my own enjoyment or entertainment, but will actively seek to bless the place I live. Why? Why as a Christian would you care about that? About doing good, not just to your faith family, but to everyone. And, and to pursue mercy or justice in the place God has called you. Uh, family, I want to tell you, it's, it's so important that you get the answer to that question right. Because there is a biblical answer and it's so important we know what it is and how it's connected to the gospel. Here's why. Because right now, it's really cool to be socially conscious and aware and engaged. At least it's cool to be seen as someone who's socially conscious and aware and engaged. But, but why should I care about doing good or making the problems of my city my problems? And the answer is, and you're not going to be surprised, the gospel, <laughs> The gospel. So what does the good news have to do with good works? That's the question I want to answer today. And to answer that question, I want to go to a very helpful little book in the New Testament, and that's Paul's letter to Titus. Because Paul's point in Titus, this is the theme of the book, good news leads to good works. Good news leads to good works. So why should I do good works? That's one question. Why shouldn't I do good works? (laughs) There are bad reasons to do good works, and we need to talk about those as well. So why to do them? Why not to do them? And hopefully we can see how the gospel propels this. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the word. God, I thank you for your word that performs its work in those who believe. And, Lord, I pray that you would teach us now and make us receptive and energize us to be like you, Jesus. You went around doing good. Help us to understand why and how to follow your example in your name. Amen. So let's return to a text we looked at last week. Remember this? You were here last week. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us, that's the gospel, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's what we looked at last week. Who are what? What's the word? Zealous for good works. Paul is writing to his young ministry protege Titus, who is planting churches on the island of Crete. You know, if you think it's hard to love your city, let me tell you about Crete. Okay? Crete, uh, a large island in the Mediterranean, right? And in Paul's day, here's what it was known for. Piracy, infighting, sexual promiscuity, and gluttony. It was a lovely place. The Cretans were fiercely independent. In fact, one of the last strongholds to resist Roman rule was Crete. So it's the Wild West of the Roman Empire, and its people had a long history of breaking every law, every rule. Cicero, the Roman politician, said that moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans considered highway robbery honorable. Polybius, the ancient historian, said, it's impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Crete had a bad reputation. Crete had a bad reputation in Crete. An ancient Cretan poet said that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In fact, the the people of Crete were such notorious liars that the Greek word for lying, do you know what it is? (laughs) Cretonize. <laughs> Hater's going to hate, right? Cretor's going to cretinize. So, so Paul is addressing Christians who live in this terrible culture, and he says don't assimilate. He also says don't withdraw. Instead, be devoted to what? To good works. And the good works Paul has in mind here is really just practical godliness in every sphere of Life, every sphere of life. So, so why should we do good works? Two reasons I want to highlight here, and the first one is this: that we were saved for good works. God's purpose in saving us was to make us a people who are zealous for good works. That term "zealous for good works" could also be translated as a title which means this. God wants his people to be known as a zealot for good works. Have you ever met a zealot? Someone who's just mad passionate about something? Right? You might say, Jeff, I'm not zealous. I'm not passionate. Yes, you are. You watch the Niner game too. <laughs> I know you're passionate. I know you were screaming at your television, right? As, as light defeated darkness. Is as you're passionate. We are passionate. We're made to be zealous and people are zealous for all kinds of things. They're zealous about their politics. They're zealous about their sports. They're zealous about their opinions on COVID. If God's people were to be accused of being a zealot, it's for what? For good works. The works Paul has in mind here are expansive. You can read through Titus and see that. They're everything from gentleness, courtesy, honoring authority, serving others, meeting cases of urgent need. In other words, the Christian life should be characterized by the passionate pursuit of practical meeting of needs. And this sort of goodness should be displayed to every imaginable person. It is, yes, in the family of God, but Paul would say we should also treat the people this way who are foolish and disobedient, And led astray, we should be kind to people who are slaves to various passions and pleasures and who are malicious and envious and and hateful. That's how Paul describes the Cretans in chapter 3. So so the Christian life entails this zealous pursuit of good even to wicked, undeserving people. We are saved to live that kind of life. Now, here's an objection that you might have. Well, Jeff, I thought the gospel was about grace, not works, not works. Saved to do good works. I thought the whole point of the gospel is that we're saved by Christ's work, right? Not our work. So why are works necessary? Well, it's absolutely true. Jesus' work saves you. Your work does not save you. And that's why in Ephesians 2, Paul says what? By grace you are saved and not by works. Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. So yeah, you are saved by grace, not by works. And that is true. Here's another question, though. What are you saved for? What are you saved for? See, I think sometimes we think of the gospel as something that saves us from bad things and nothing else, right? So the gospel saves us from sin, from judgment, from hell, from death, and that's all gloriously true, and it's also half the gospel. Because the gospel is always a thing that is salvation from bad things for God's things. Four good things. God always has a redemptive purpose. And isn't it interesting that right after Paul says, you have not been saved by good works, what does he say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Here's what it means. Good works don't accomplish our salvation, but our salvation makes it possible for us to actually do good works. As we say around here at Creekside, grace doesn't make obedience unnecessary. Grace makes obedience possible. That's the point. This is God's redemptive purpose. God is creating you to be a new person. Do you see that? You're created in Christ Jesus. You're transformed And so here's the question you got to ask. What kind of person was Jesus? Right? God's making you like Jesus. That's salvation. So, So who is Jesus? Well, I love what Peter says in Acts 10. He says that Jesus was a man who went about doing what? Good. You're to sum up his life. There it is, a man who went about doing good. Jesus' life is characterized by proactive goodness for people in need all the time. All the time. And the cross is the ultimate demonstration of that, where Jesus takes on all of our evil to bring us the greatest good, our salvation, in him. Jesus is who we are being conformed to. He is the perfectly righteous one. And do you know who the righteous are in the Bible? How would you define the righteous? I like how Bruce Waltke defines the righteous In his commentary on Proverbs, he says this, the righteous, according to the Proverbs, according to the Bible, are those willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. See, in the Bible, righteousness is more than just internal purity. It is that. It's living an internally pure holy life, but it's also public goodness. An active pursuit of blessing people, even if it disadvantages you. And Jesus is what? The example of that par excellence, right? The one with all the advantages (laughs) takes on the disadvantage of our sin and death to give us the greatest advantage of all, which is life in his kingdom. So if I want to be like Jesus, I'm going to be the kind of person who disadvantages myself for the advantage of others. Does that make sense? Here's the second reason that we do good works, and that's to display the kingdom of God. Paul says it's adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. What does it mean to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? Here's what it means. It means that the truth that we believe is not just something to declare. It's something we have to display with our lives. Right, I can tell people till I'm blue in the face that Jesus loves them and died for them. But I'm not just called to tell, I'm called to show the love of Jesus. And it's only by showing that people understand the message we're declaring. Word and deed always go together. Does that make sense? Okay. Stay with me. I know it's a lot of content. I'll have a story later, okay? Just hang with me here, all right? (laughs) because see here's another objection people might have to doing good works or maybe a fear that that you might have that christians should pursue good works in the world you say well jeff the mission of the church is what to preach the gospel right It's to preach the gospel so people get saved and and so if the church is is really concerned about doing good works we're going to forget about preaching the gospel which is the church's primary mission now is preaching the gospel the primary mission of the church i'd say yes I think that's actually clear in the New Testament that our primary mission is to declare the king because no one comes into the kingdom unless they what? They believe the king and submit to his lordship. Here's the thing. In the New Testament, declaring the king is never separated from displaying the kingdom in the way we live our lives. See, they always go together. And here's a helpful way to think about this. What did it look like for Jesus to live out his mission? Because that'll help us to understand what it's going to look like for us to live out ours. I think it's helpful to look at what Jesus came to do through two lenses, okay? There's the zoom lens, and I'm not talking about computer zoom, okay? Like, close up, zoom lens. It's also important to think about what Jesus does through a wide-angle lens, the widest lens possible, right? So what does Jesus come to earth to do? Well, if you look at Jesus' work through a Zoom lens, you could say Jesus comes to earth to save individual people and give them a relationship with God, right? That's like when Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus goes after lost people. Doesn't he spend his time doing that? Zacchaeus, right? The woman at the well, he'll find the one. And he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. Jesus cares about the one, And that's the good news of the gospel, right, is that Jesus would come to get me, come to get you. And that's what lights our hearts on fire for Jesus, that he would think about you as an individual and come to get you. That is the zoom lens in the gospel and what Jesus came to do. That's beautiful. That's what moves our hearts, what draws and inclines our hearts to Jesus. Here's the problem. If you don't, if you just focus on the zoom lens, Jesus' mission seems a little small, doesn't it? If, if it's just about getting individuals and zapping them into heaven, I'm grateful for that. But that sounds a lot like that sort of me and Jesus gospel that we talked about last week, right? What about injustice and disease and war and decay and death and Satan and spiritual forces of evil? Uh, what about all that stuff? How is Jesus going to fix What's broken in this world, and this is why we need more than a zoom lens, we need what? A big lens to look at the bigness of what Jesus accomplishes, because it's not just zapping individuals into heaven, it's actually reclaiming all of creation for God and bringing everything into alignment with what God wants. That's why Jesus, when he describes his mission in Mark 1, he says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, when Jesus is talking about the gospel here, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. You know what the kingdom of God is in the Bible? That's God's reign, his rule being displayed on the earth. See, here's what Jesus says the good news is here, that God is taking back the earth from the evil one and reclaiming it, and that's good news. Jesus is acting to reassert God's sovereignty on the earth and to take back the ground that Satan had stolen. Think about it this way. If Jesus' only mission was to zap individuals into heaven, then why, when he begins his ministry, doesn't he just, like, sprint to the cross, right? (laughs) Got to save individuals, got to go die. He doesn't. What does he do? He spends three years doing what? Healing people, casting out demons, feeding people, why? Because the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, and everything is being made right. Everything. And that's why everywhere Jesus goes, he doesn't just preach good news, he is good news, right? Everything gets better when Jesus shows up. Got sickness? Gone. <laughs> hungry people? Not hungry anymore, right? Oppressed people? Oppression gone. Marginalized people? Brought in. Funeral? Canceled, right? Right? Jesus never went to a funeral. He just ended funerals. You ever notice that? He just raises dead people. Why does he do all of that? Because he is giving this preview of coming attractions. He's saying that when God's rule breaks into the earth, everything gets better. Everything sad comes untrue. Everything evil gets undone. Everything unjust gets rectified. And so if that's true, if there's this zoom angle to the mission of Jesus and a wide angle, what does that mean for us as we follow Jesus? It means that as Christians, yes, we declare the king. That is our mission. But always displaying the kingdom as we do it. Always. Does that make sense? You're following Jesus. It's always declaring the king and displaying the kingdom. It's critical we do both. See, because there's a danger for the church to say our mission is to do good. And you can do a lot of good as a church, but here's the deal. If people are rebels against the king, they're not in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not advancing if you just do a lot of good stuff and people still hate the king and are rebellious against him. We have to declare the king. On the other side, you can declare the king all day, and if you don't care a lick about the people around you, you are bearing false witness to what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, Paul would say in Titus that you are discrediting the gospel message because it always goes together. People do not have a vision for what the reign of God looks like and why they would want to join in unless the people of God live that way in the world. And God's mission has always been to save a people for himself through whom the world is blessed. So that where God's people go, things should get better too because the presence of the king is with them. So, why would I be concerned about good works? You were saved for this. And you were saved to display the kingdom as a people. And so the application question to ask yourself is this, if this is true, where am I regularly disadvantaging myself for the advantage of others is the question to ask. That's what it means to be zealous for good works. Do you have relationships in your life where you are using your time, talent, treasure, resources, and sacrificing something to people who have nothing to give you in return? People who have no benefit to you, no advantage to you, purely out of conscience for Christ and saying, this is what he saved me to do. It's important that we understand that this should be a regular habit of the Christian life. Yes, have a Bible reading habit, a prayer habit, a habit of being in Christian community, all of these things. It is a habit of the Christian life to serve those in need because Jesus went about doing good. And if you're going to become like Christ, you need to learn to do that. Do you have a habit of doing it? We we at Creekside are are very committed to this. I, I'm so pleased with Lynn and Angelique who we brought on as, as co-directors of community service this year because they are just, you, you can never say, I don't have an opportunity. They're gonna give you an opportunity. <laughs> if they say, is there a way to serve? They're gonna give you a way to serve. So where is this? Some of you are doing this already, but if you're looking for a place, let, let me tell you, there's an opportunities to serve guide that's out there right now, and it just lists, here are all sorts of ways you can love, serve, and bless your community, right now. And talk to Lynn, talk to Angelique, they'll get you involved. Here's one really practical um, way. Right now, That's a big need. Some of you might know, we we partner with Cross Street's food pantry that's out here every second and fourth Saturday of the month. I was walking out of our elders meeting last morning and there's a line of cars, it's a drive-through pantry going all the way down MacArthur here. um, Serving people with food insecurity in our community. And there's 250 families a week, a time we do this, coming through. And that number's gonna grow. And uh, there is a huge practical way to help right there, Uh, especially if you speak Cantonese or Mandarin. I wanna talk to you like right after this because they need help. Listen, if you're young and you haven't slipped a disc... I need you to help. <laughs> right? The glory of old men is their gray hair, Proverbs says. The glory of young men is that they have a back. All right? If you have a back, we need you to lift some things. That's a way to help. There are ways to help right now. Look through that, but we are going to keep pursuing this um, because of the gospel. Okay? Because of the gospel, not because it's trendy. Not because we want to be pleasing in the eyes of our community. Not because we think it's going to win people to Jesus even. I don't know if it will. But the reality is in the, in the New Testament, when the church does active good, some people love it, some people hate it in the community. Right? Because they're not going to like everything we believe. That's not why we do it. But ultimately, it's to embody the message of Jesus and demonstrate the kingdom. So that's why we should do good works Why why wouldn't you do good works? Let me give you three reasons not to do them, and here's why I say this. The minute you enter into the brokenness and suffering and injustice of the world, you will be overwhelmed at how deep the problem goes. Absolutely overwhelmed. And so you've got to get the motivation right, because if you don't, you will get ground down with discouragement and despair, and you won't want to keep going. Three reasons not to do it. First is the worst reason, the worst motivation is to prove myself to God. I need to be acceptable to God. God won't think I'm a good Christian. God won't love me unless I care about this issue. Uh, Paul says very clearly that you are not saved by works. Titus 3.5, he says, God saves us not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness. Here's the point. The first step to doing good in the world is actually to root yourself in the unconditional love of God and acceptance you have in Christ. And to know that God already loves you 100% in Him and that what you are going to do in the world is not going to give you an identity with God. You already have an identity from God. You're not working for that identity, you're working from it. Here's why that's important. If you have any sense of God's distance or displeasure with you and think this is going to earn you some favor before God, it will drive you crazy. I I love Martin Luther's story. He said that Jesus' command to love God was the thing that drove him to hate God. And here's why. Every time he read that, I thought, well, I don't love God enough. I don't love God perfectly. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And every time he read that, he'd go, I don't. And he said, I can never do this. That led him to hate God. You know why? Because he didn't understand the gospel. He had not yet seen that God already loved him with all God's heart and strength and soul and mind. So, you don't do this to prove yourself to God. Second, you don't do this to prove yourself to others. Don't serve people for the approval of other people. There is so much obsession with that right now. I mean, I know every good thing everyone's doing because they post it all the time. Felt good to do that, right? Right, there is such an emphasis on publicly. I don't think there's a fire, don't worry, okay? Um, That thing just goes off. Um, But on being publicly recognized as the right kind of person. That's so big right now. But what does Jesus say? Do not practice your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. If you do, you have your reward in full. If you want to please God, do it in secret. Here's why I say that. If you do good in the world, it's a thankless task. It's a thankless task. People aren't going to... They're not going to see it. They're not going to applaud you, right? It's sort of like parenting, right? Right? like parenting. You know, I've I got to say, I, uh, I've done a lot for my kids, and I don't think my kids have, have done this yet. They haven't, they haven't said to me at the end of the day, "What, Dad, you spent your entire day serving me. I'm astonished. You made me three meals. You dressed me. You told me to make my bed five times, and then you made it for me, and I ignored you. You cleaned my clothes, and you took me to the park. I just, how could I ever repay you? Hasn't happened yet, okay? <laughs> you're not expecting that, right? Maybe in ten years, maybe in ten. But but if you are doing this for the approval of others, you're not going to get it. Third reason that'll ground, will just that'll grind you up, is to do this to save the world. That motivation will kill you spiritually, and here's why: the world's not yours to save. It's Jesus. And, and, and listen, we all read the Bible a little differently on this, but as I look to the end times and how the world gets fixed, I do not see a relentless march of the church making the world better and then right when it's best, Jesus comes back, okay? I don't buy that theology. I think the kingdom of God expands, the kingdom of darkness expands, and that ultimately it takes Jesus coming back To do the cleanup job and fix this thing because only he can fix it. Now, we can make progress. The church can make progress. The church has. Things have gotten better. But this hope that I'm going to fix this thing in society, that will not sustain you. Because the deeper you get into it, you see the deeper the problem is and it will be absolutely overwhelming. And you'll get demoralized and you'll quit and you won't be faithful. It's about honoring Jesus and being faithful, not about fixing the world. I'll tell you, as Cashel and I have gotten deeper into the world of foster care, I I just see this more where I'm just like, this feels impossible, God. as a problem to fix. I was was talking with uh, Bishop Aaron Blake. He's an amazing man. He's a, a pastor in Broward County, Texas, and he led a movement. They are the only county in the country that I know of where there are more foster parents than foster kids. So, because of the church in that county, there's more families waiting for a child to be placed than there are children to place. Which is an astonishing accomplishment and it's one county. One. And and so I'm like, that's great. <laughs> To make it happen in Alameda County? God, I don't know if that happens in my lifetime. And I can't make the goal of seeing it happen in my lifetime. I'm working toward it. But if fixing the world is my goal, uh, then I am taking on the wrong job description. That's Jesus' job. Okay? Ultimately, only the gospel can give me the motivation. In Deuteronomy 10, when Jesus, when God commands his people, love the sojourner. Love the alien. Do you know why he says we should? He says, because you, Israel, were sojourners and aliens and slaves in a foreign land, and I came and sought you and loved you and brought you in, so love those on the margins. That's why. That's a gospel motivation. Jesus, I want to treat other people the way you treat me. And that radically reorients my life to disadvantage myself for other people. Len Scrivener, a pastor, he said it like this. He said, if natural selection means the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest, Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest for the survival of the weakest. That's the gospel. It completely flips around the natural way we think life should work. Work or does work, which means those with the most advantage, the most fitness, the most health, the most wealth, go first in joyfully pouring out their lives for the weakest, the neediest. Why? Because that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us these kind of people. Lord, that we wouldn't be overwhelmed by the need. Uh, that we'd be overwhelmed by your grace toward us. And Lord, that you used all of your advantages <laughs> to bring us in our great spiritual disadvantage into your kingdom. Would we just act like you because you love us so well? And would we joyfully, consistently find that way to pour out our lives for um, the least, the forgotten, the last. For your sake, Jesus. Amen.